You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. A way to kind of summarize what we've seen so far, including one bit that we've just been hinting at but haven't talked about explicitly, is with this little chart. We have different cognitive states, and let's focus on the one we've been focusing on, episteme, different gnosis, we could have called this, or genologists. And episteme is a type of gnosis or genealogy. It's the type of genealogy, the highest or best type of genealogy, that we could have of a certain type of object, namely effects or derivative objects, objects that are caused by something else. And we have this kind of knowledge, this episteme of effects, when we've demonstrated the effects. Now, demonstration is not necessarily the way we discover that these effects obtain. In some cases, it might be. You might not ever notice that triangles have, uh, have angles uh, equal to uh, the sum of two right angles until you've given the geometrical proof of it. But you very well might have known that fact beforehand. However, until you have done the demonstration and hold that fact now as the conclusion of the demonstration, only then have your, has your knowledge of it been upgraded to this special form of knowledge, e-knowledge or episteme, uh, in having which you not only know the thing, but you also have its why. You know it as having to be the way it is because it follows from certain causes. And so episteme is a kind of high-grade knowledge we have of effects, which we have of the effects by demonstrating them. Demonstration being deduction from causes, ultimately from what Aristotle calls principles. And I was saying we can think of these as fundamentals. The things that are, as he puts it, first by nature. Well, how do we have the principles? Well, how do we know the principles? The name for our knowledge, our genealogy, our gnosis of the principles is nous. Nous is the state that we have of principles or fundamentals. The principles, recall, are axioms, definitions, and hypotheses. But the name of the state we have of these is nous. And we reach nous from a certain input knowledge, namely perception, by a process Aristotle calls induction. And when you think of it as induction, you're thinking of it more as a method. And we were talking about the progression from perception to principles yesterday, but not from the perspective of somebody thinking of it as a method, wanting to know how to do it, what do I need to do, how do I get to the principles, but rather from somebody looking at human knowledge, in effect, from the third person perspective, saying, well, what's the nature of these states such that some of them can come to be from the other? Today we're going to look at it from the first person perspective, from the perspective of what Aristotle thinks you need to do in order to achieve noose of the principles by having which you'll then see the effects as following deductively from these principles and thereby have episteme or e-knowledge of the very effects that you might have known to begin with or maybe you didn't know them to begin with but now you will both know and understand them we might say. Okay, so any questions about this, uh, this general framework? This morning we hear from uh, John Lewis uh-huh. It's like our mind is all around us, almost like a heat. Well, who's so? Uh, 
w w John Lewis said in, in a lecture this morning uh, that nooses all around us like the, like the ether, yeah. like the air. Okay, well, I'm sure John wasn't saying that in his own voice. So who, who, to whom was he attributing that view? Ah, okay. The play of the cloud. So noose is a word that can mean mind, intellect, intelligence, anything like that, um, including the particular intelligence or understanding you have of a principle. Aristotle uses it to mean the understanding you have of a principle. But there's a wide tradition in Greek thought going back earlier and continuing later to use it as the kind of mind and to think of it as cosmic in some way. And indeed, this continues into Aristotle who thinks of his god as a kind of noose. But we're not talking about that part of his metaphysics here, so you can ask about it later if you want. But uh, in the relevant use of it, it names a certain mental state. Uh, now, some people think of that mental state as, you know, the one that God has and maybe God's all around us, but that's not the use that we have of it here, and so it's not directly relevant. Okay, so the question is, how do we get from perception to noose of principles? Broad answer by induction. Uh, what is induction? Uh, Aristotle doesn't, you know, occasionally throws around that term and will often say, you, this is clear from induction, look at all the examples. But when he's giving a more technical treatment of how we get to the principles, he doesn't tend to use the term induction, but I think it is what he thinks of induction as being. So we're going to look at the process by which we get to know the principle. Let's review, though, the context in which we're doing this. We had two questions for Aristotle once we got the kind of general gist of his view. And uh, one of those questions had two sub-questions, and that's what we've been uh, addressing mostly yesterday. So the two questions were, how can episteme, which is of universals, be of objects in the perceptible world which are particulars? There we saw that his answer was that episteme, uh, insofar as it's of universals, is a pa acquired a power or ability you have to know things. And when you're actually using it to contemplate things, to know, to know things in full actuality, to have it fully turned on, what you're knowing is always some particular. But the power to know this particular is the very same power, I'm pointing at one man, to know that particular or that particular or that particular. So if you talk about your knowledge of man, the very knowledge that is used when I understand why you need to have legs and eyes and, uh, and why it is that you speak language and why it is that if I uh, try to force you to do things, it will be bad. That very same knowledge um, is the same knowledge that the same thing in me that allows me to know those same things of you and of you and of you, pointing to all the different men. And so if we think about what is that power I have about, that power is about men in general. Even though there is no general man for the power to be about, what it is for the power of knowing to be about men in general, that is the power of knowing about man, which is our knowledge of man, um, is for it to apply, to be able to be turned on with respect to any man. Okay, that's the answer to the first question. The answer to the second question, the second question is how can noose of the principles come about from less high grade, less intense forms of knowledge than noose, like perception? And we talked yesterday about um, the various states that are involved 
on the way from perception to noose, on the way from perception to grasp of a principle. And we talked about um, how you first perceive individuals which do fall under these universals. You then retain memory of these individuals. Those memories then become associated into what Aristotle calls experience or empiria. The experience that you have with a range of similar particulars enables you to start making inarticulate, non-self-conscious kind of predictions or forming hunches about new particulars of that kind. And at some point, that inarticulate ability, which is a knack or an empiria, an experiential ability, kind of becomes self-conscious and articulate. And, uh, and uh, forms into a concept with a definition. There are men, men are rational animals, and that's why the following things will be true of them, which are explained by their rationality. Okay. What we're going to look at today is this same type of process, but from the perspective of methodology. What is it that you need to do in order to uh, come to grasp principles from perception? What's the process we should go through? And there are several different places, types of contexts in which Aristotle gives methodological advice on coming to reach principles. Broadly, if we look at his corpus, there are two types of contexts in which he discusses this. One is in the organon. Recall the organon is the part of his corpus that deals with giving us the tools for good thinking, the methods for thinking, the instrument of thought. So one is in the organon he talks about this, and that's mostly what we're going to focus on today. But I just want to mention another type of place that he talks about this often in the course of pursuing some other investigation later in the corpus, investigating animals, investigating bodies, etc. He'll pause to say, well, how should we proceed since we're trying to get at the principles? What's the right method to follow? And he'll make some remarks there. And especially in the early chapters of his books on different subjects, of the dianima, of the physics, you find a lot of good material there. And we'll look at the first chapter of the physics in this connection at the very end of today. But the organon is really the main place. And the organon is composed of six books, depending on how you want to cut them up. The first two, the categories and the De Interpretatione, we haven't been talking about. They're sort of preliminaries about um, which people can ask if they like later. The prior and posterior analytics form a pair. The posterior analytics talks about episteme and demonstration. And the prior analytics talks about deduction more generally, which you can then use. Uh, it sort of subserves the posterior analytics. And the material about middle terms and so forth that we discussed uh, a few days ago was in there. And then there's the topics and the sophistical refutations, which is an appendix to the topics. And the topics is about what uh, is called dialectic, or what Aristotle calls dialectic. And since this. Uh, has something to do with his view of how you come to get principles. I think less to do than a lot of people think. Uh, I want to take some time now to tell you a little bit about what dialectic is and what the topics is before turning back to the posterior analytics, which is what I think I'm going to focus on mostly today. So dialectic is a word that at root just means sort of conversation or conversational from dia through and legain talking. It's talking something through. 
Uh, and it describes what Socrates would do when he would chat with people. Oh, so you think you know, you know how to make the young good. You must know what goodness is. Why don't you tell me? And they'd have a chat about it. And it generally means conversation or conversational method or something like that. Uh, Plato and some other philosophers came to take it to be the method of philosophy and had various views about what dialectic consisted in. But mostly it consists in exposing contradictions and trying to make uh, things, at least as Plato uses it, trying to come up with a coherent body of knowledge from a kind of contradictory cluster. Working through your views, checking for contradictions, trying to resolve them. At least that's a generalized enough sense of what it means in the academy. In the academy, that is Plato's school, it came to take on a more specific meaning of a certain exercise that seemed to have been performed. And the exercise would be performed like this. You and I would have a bout of dialectic. And you would take a role. You would be the answerer. And so I would ask you a question. Are all painful things bad? Yes. Yes. OK, so you answer yes, all painful things are bad. He might have said no. But now he's committed to yes. Now my job as the questioner is to ask him further questions, which he's going to answer yes or no, and to try to trap him in a contradiction. So I'll say, well, is going to the dentist bad? And is going to the dentist painful? And then he'll either be caught in a contradiction or he'll have a way out of it. And we'll go back and forth until one of us wins. Either I give up or I've trapped him in a contradiction. And uh, if we are good at this sport, you're going to be good at defending either answer, yes or no. And I'm going to be good at trapping you into a contradiction, whatever answer, yes or no. And it's a kind of sport. And so there was dialectical discussion as a kind of exercise or sport. Now, the topics is, in part, a manual for how to play this game. Some of the advice given in is specific to when you're playing this kind of game. Others uh, is more general, and it's advice for how to use the more general skill that this game is supposed to help you develop. The way Aristotle defines dialectic, which he uh, uh, talks about as the subject of the topics, is it's an ability to, when answering questions, not get caught in a contradiction, or when questioning somebody, get them caught in a contradiction. So you're going to be able to answer or ask questions you know, as well as possible. And he says that a dialectical argument, which is what the topics is really about constructing, is an argument, sometimes he says, that uses premises regardless of whether they're true or false. Because you have to be able to pick either side, and I have to be able to trap you whatever side you picked. But something has to make some premises better than others to use. And the standard that he gives, he says a dialectical argument is an argument from what he calls enduxa, E-N-D-O-X-A, enduxa. And a premise is induxon. What induxon means is basically reputable opinion. It's an opinion that has some currency. Aristotle says the enduxa are the things believed by everybody, or most people, or the wise, or most of the wise, or the wisest of the wise. So it, they're beliefs that have some currency in the context in which you're operating. And he says that being good at arguing from induxa and finding arguments from induxa 
and refuting arguments based on induxa has basically three uses. First of all, it's useful for exercise. That is this kind of game that we might be playing, which sharpens our logical chops. Second, it's useful for casual encounters. Now, I think this actually shouldn't be dismissed. This is an important observation. If you're on the bus with somebody and you want to convince them that uh, Obamacare is bad, you, know, you can't start back from the first principles of ethics and say, well, the standard is man's life. And there's just not time and it's not going to be very persuasive. You have to find which beliefs will have some currency with them that you can then lead to the conclusion that Obamacare is bad or show them that their support of it is contradictory. And I think there's something to that. Now, if you're trying to argue to a conclusion that you think is true, you're not going to pick any old belief, including false ones they have. But nevertheless, what makes it a good premise is that you know it'll have some currency with them. It's something that everybody believes, or most people, or certain reputable people. You know, Thomas Jefferson said the best government is the one that governs most, least. He's wise, reputable. Don't you, you know, doesn't that have, have any connection with you? Okay. The third use of dialectics, as Aristotle, the first is exercise, the second is casual encounters, is that it's useful in connection with the principles of the sciences. Why? Well, he thinks that if you're able to argue on either side of a question, to see what follows from two contradictory positions, it will help you determine what the principles are. And it will help you test the results of a certain proposed principle. Somebody says everything is water. And you don't have to wait to believe everything is water to start arguing from it. You say, well, if I thought everything was water, what else would I think? What might follow from that? No, you know, everything is water doesn't seem to work out too well. What if everything was air? No, it's, you know. And so there's going to be some use in playing out the different possibilities here. Now, some people take Aristotle's whole method in philosophy to be dialectic. Basically what he's doing in all of his works is proceeding dialectically, starting from common or reputable beliefs and pitting them against each other uh, and refining, therefore, the set of received opinion until he gets something that's maximally consistent and that will then be his principle. Um, I've talked in my course on Aristotle's ethics and in a, a paper I've recently published about why I don't think this is right. Uh, and so I'm not going to kind of go through the details here. In part, we need to look at his different practice and see if that's what he's really doing. And that would require surveying what he does in a number of places. But I'll just, I want you to have that, that know that that's a common view of Aristotle's method um, in the background. Now, even if that's not the right view, and I don't think it is, there's nevertheless the case that he thinks that uh, this dialectical method, and particularly what's talked about in the topics, has some use in connection to thinking about principles. In part, I think it's because you can test or check ideas that have come before you and see, well, have the people who claim that they've gotten it right really got it right? No, it leads to contradictions. I also want to say just a word or two about what actually goes on in the topics, uh, which I do think is really relevant to understanding principles, because the people who are all gung-ho about dialectic, which is a lot of Aristotelian scholars, at least in the last generation, uh, tend not to talk about what actually goes on in the work. Uh, they just talk about what's in the introduction and the conclusion where he seems big on endoxa. And what the work actually does for the bulk of it 
just so anyone who wants to pursue this further knows where to look for things, is it talks about different types of propositions. Some propositions try to uh, are, are meant to give mere accidental features of things. You're blonde. Just a fact about you. Um, some propositions aim not to purport not to just be telling you one fact about things, but what Aristotle calls a distinguishing characteristic. Like, men can laugh, and only men can laugh, human beings. That's a distinguishing characteristic of men. That's Ayn Rand's word, distinguishing characteristic. The Greek uh, that I'm using to translate the Greek, the Greek is idion, which got translated into Latin proprium, from which we get the English property. But now property tends to mean any feature. So you have to say, well, distinguishing property or distinguishing characteristic. Distinctive, you know, what's peculiar to you or to whatever you're talking about. A third thing that a proposition might purport to predicate of its subject is the genus. Man is an animal. And then finally, a fourth type of proposition purports to predicate the definition. Man is the rational animal. And so the topics is divided up into subsections corresponding to what you're trying to show. Just an accidental feature of something. You're trying to show a property of it, a proprium, a distinguishing characteristic of it. You're trying to show what its genus is. You're trying to show what its definition is. And then what it does is it gives you tactics for arguing for or against the claim that a given thing is something's genus, distinguishing characteristic, uh, accident, property. And it gives you kind of what a lawyer might call the elements of proof for each of these things. You know, if it's a distinguishing property, it's got to have it and nothing else can have it. Right? And then certain strategies. For example, if you're trying to figure out whether a certain thing is the genus of something, check about whether, for example, um, good is the genus of pleasure. See if the thing whose genus you're looking for has an opposite, like pain is opposite to pleasure. And if it does, then that opposite should either be in the same genus or in an opposite genus. So I'm trying to see whether good might be the genus of pleasure. If it is, then either good or its opposite bad would have to be the genus of pain. Is that plausible? And maybe you know I can find a, a way to attack or support the definition, the, the genus claim from that. So these are the kinds of argumentative strategies you get in the topics. He also says that all of our abilities to do these arguments depend on abilities to tell what's the same and different, ultimately. And I think that um, those kinds of skills, those kind of tactics, and those abilities to distinguish things and see when things are the same, are not unique to when you're arguing based on induxa or not. Uh, and I think a lot of the use made of topic strategies elsewhere is really independent of this question of do the premises get to be premises because everyone believes them or not. Anyway, that's all I want to say about the topics just so that you know it's there and a part of, uh, a part of Aristotle's writing on knowledge. Uh, and it has something to do with how we get to principles in his view. I might indicate some other places where you can see it creeping up, but I'm not going to focus on it. I want to focus rather on the posterior analytics. And this is where all the material on episteme that we've already talked about is. But most of that material is in book one. In book two, he talks about investigation, how you look into things. And he begins book two 
by distinguishing different types of things we seek. That is, different types of questions we try to find the answer to. The first two that he mentions are that we seek the that and the why. An example of the that, or it's sometimes translated less literally, the fact, is whether the sun is eclipsed or not. So you have some fact, the sun is eclipsed, or some putative fact. You say, is this so? Is the sun eclipsed? Or, does the earth move? And what you're trying to find out is whether it's true or false, the earth moves. A second thing we might try to ask is for the why. Why is the sun eclipsed? Why does the earth move? And importantly, Aristotle thinks these questions go in an order. You can't look into why such and such is the case unless you already know that it's the case. For example, it would be a mistake to look into why is there global warming unless you'd prove that there was global warming. Right? The debate whether or not the Earth is warming comes first, and then should come, all right, well, if it is, why? Okay. So the why is something you can look into after you've established the that. You might come to know the that and the why at the same time if you discover some cause and immediately see that an effect follows from it. You could come to know the two things at once, but you can't possibly go looking for the why unless you're already assuming the that. And so you need to seek out the that, and then having found them, find the whys. Sometimes we just know the that's without looking, like we know that there are lots of different animals, and so then we might ask why the animals come in the different species they are. Sometimes we don't even know the that, and we have to go looking for it. But looking for the why establishes that you already have the that, or rather presupposes that you already have the that. Okay, second set of questions if it is and what it is. And he says, I mean, if it is simplicity, or if it is period, not if it is such and such. What does he mean by that? Well, whether there are centaurs or not would be an if it is question. Not whether centaurs are dangerous, right? But whether there are any. Do centaurs exist? Do gods exist? That's an if it is question. Does a certain type of thing exist or not? Well, once you've established that it does exist, again, you might not have to seek it if you already know. We know there are men, so we don't have to go seek that. But we might not know whether there are uh, any animals that um, have six legs and fly. And then we discover that there are bees. Uh, you have to look closely to see how many legs they have. right? Uh, but once you establish if it is, either because you just noticed it or because you went looking and found out the if it is, you then can ask what it is. Okay, there are gods, what are they? There are men, what are they? What is a man? Now, these questions come in pairs, thinks Aristotle. Looking for the that and looking for the if it is really amount to the same thing. Recall, looking for a that is looking to know whether a certain subject has a certain predicate. Are, um, is the sun eclipsed? Does the earth move? And looking for the if it is amounts to looking for whether a certain kind of thing exists or not. Are there eclipses? But he thinks these amount to the same thing because you can reconfigure any if it is question 
into a whether it is question, into a that. And so let's look at how we might do this. Is there an eclipse, namely a lunar eclipse? Now, same question as, is the moon eclipsed? That is, is the moon gone dark? Or again, is there thunder? Are the clouds noisy in that certain way they sometimes are? Or, are there unicorns? Do any horses have horns? Right? For there to be a unicorn would be for a horse to be horned. Are there gods? Are any animals immortal? Using an old academic platonic definition of God, the immortal animal. I always find that kind of a cute definition. Tozoan a thanaton, the animal that doesn't die. Okay. Um, are there any things like this? Are there any subjects that have this predicate? Now I want to point out that there are certain if it is is, certain knowledges that something is, that can't be, and Aristotle acknowledges, can't be translated into that a certain subject has a certain predicate. For example, there are entities. What subject predicate combination would you use for that? There are animals, you could say some entities are living, but there are entities can't seem to do it. There are quantities. Well, about these sorts of things, you can't reformulate the it is into S is P. But for that very reason, Aristotle thinks in this kind of a case, you can't even ask the question, are there any entities? If you even have the idea of an entity, it's just such a simple thing, you know there are any. And if you didn't know there were any, you wouldn't even know what the word meant. You wouldn't be able to have any idea of it. It's just too simple. In the case of quantity, you know there's such a thing as quantity, or you don't know what quantity is at all. There's no kind of complexity to the concept, which there would need to be to be able to raise the question of whether there were such things. And this is going to be true of at least some of the concepts that are principles. It's true of what objectivism calls axiomatic concepts, I think. So that's an interesting point. Another way to put it is these can't be broken down into definitions, where we have a genus and a, a differentia, and we say, do, do any of the members of this differentia, of this genus, have this differentia? Like, uh, do any horses have horns? Are any animals four-legged? Right. Is, is this what you the categories are the things I'm using as examples of this, like quality, quantity, substance. Uh, there might be a few other things other than the categories that also meet this specification, like actuality and potentiality, perhaps, um, and perhaps God, it turns out, for certain reasons. But that's a noose thought, turns out. It might be like this. There are a few other things that might be like this. The categories definitely are like this. And of course, he could have been wrong about some of the things he thinks are like this, like God, perhaps. Okay, if indeed he thinks God's like that, it's somewhat controversial. Okay, but for most things, we can reformulate the question of whether the thing exists or not into the question of whether a certain matter has a certain form, whether a certain entity is undergoing a certain process, whether a certain genus has a certain differentia, for any of its members, or in general, whether a certain S has a certain P, a certain subject has a certain predicate. And so the if it is question, whenever one's able to ask that question, 
is the same question sort of reformulated as the question of whether some s is p. And so the two, keep accidentally hitting this volume, and so the two questions labeled one amount to the same thing. It's going to turn out that the two questions labeled two, why something is and what it is, amount to the same thing in Aristotle's view also. To see how that is, it helps to look at an example. So thunder. Is there any thunder? Well, is there a certain noise in the clouds? Suppose that we establish by hearing it, or maybe by noticing that animals are running away and they'd only be running away if there were a noise. One way or the other, we establish that there is a certain noise in the clouds. Well, now we want to ask why there's a certain noise in the clouds. And what does asking why there's a certain noise in the clouds amount to for Aristotle? It amounts to looking for whether there's a middle term between noise and clouds. A middle term that's prior by nature. Something that belongs to clouds in a more causally, in a more fundamental way than noise does, which will make noise belong to them. And so, in a famous example that Aristotle trots out several times throughout the posterior analytics, he says, yeah, the middle term is the extinguishing of fire. There's the extinguishing of fire in the clouds, and because of that, the clouds are noisy. Now let me pause to say Aristotle does not think this is the right explanation of thunder. In general, in Aristotle's logical works, he's not concerned to give the right explanations of things probably because he thinks those were too complicated to serve as good examples of the structure. And you need to read his meteorology to find out the somewhat more complicated example of, uh, of how thunder works that he has there. But this is a common, uh, and he criticizes this view there, but this is a, a common enough and plausible enough explanation of thunder that's simple enough that we can use it as a kind of what philosophers sometimes call toy example to see how the explanation of thunder would work. Uh, and so since Aristotle doesn't think it's true, I don't feel so bad with us using it as though it were true, since we know there's no fire going out there. OK. But anyway, the middle term between the clouds and that noise, boom, you know, you hear when it's thundering, is the extinguishing of fire. And so why is there noise in the clouds? Well, because there's extinguishing of fire there. But the point was that the what it is question is the same as the why it is question. And that's so because if I ask you now, well, what is thunder? Answer, it's the extinguishing of fire in the clouds. What is that certain noise in the clouds? Oh, that's some fire getting extinguished. And so the what it is question is the same as the why it is question. Both of them are giving you the middle terms. Both the that and the if it is are establishing, is there a connection between two terms? Does some P predicate belong to some subject, S? If it does, what's the middle? Now, once you've established, we need to think about how you establish it, but once you've established that the extinguishing of fire belongs to the clouds and a certain noise belongs to the extinguishing of fire, and therefore, the clouds are noisy due to fire being extinguished in them. You've either got a demonstration, or at least you're closer to having a demonstration than you were before. You've gone back in the direction of causes. 
What you now have to do is look for these connections to see whether there's any middle terms there. So maybe the reason why the, uh, a certain noise happens when fire is extinguished is, oh, sorry. Uh, so you can see how this works out to be a demonstration, right? Uh, anything extinguishing a fire is noisy, the clouds are extinguishing a fire, and the clouds are noisy in a certain way because they're extinguishing fire, and anything that extinguishes fire is noisy. Think about throwing a bucket of water on a roaring campfire, and it's a kind of noise. That's, I think, what the idea is here. All right, so now we have a demonstration, or at least we're closer to having one. It's not a demonstration unless we can get it all the way back to the primary things. So we ask, what about this connection between being noisy and being the extinguishing of fire? Is fire just noisy, fire extinguishing? Or is there something in between uh, being noisy and fire extinguishing that explains why uh, a certain noise comes about whenever fire is extinguished? Now I'm going beyond Aristotle's example. He says, maybe there are further middle terms. I'll put in what they might be. The exhalation of air. Perhaps the extinguishing of fire pushes a lot of air out, and that's why it's noisy. Plausible enough, since noise is a disruption of the air, as Aristotle thinks and turns out to be basically true. And is there a middle term between extinguishing of fire and the clouds? Is there some cause due to which the clouds extinguish fire? Presumably, it's because they're moist. So what we do is we start like this with a connection with two terms that we notice that they come together. The clouds are noisy. Then we look for what's in the middle. Having done that, we have at least the beginnings, or we're close to having a demonstration. We have a deduction that goes from causes to effects. But we need it to go from primary causes to effects. We need to get all the way back to the principles, or to what Aristotle sometimes calls indivisible connections. And so we look between the subject and, pre and, uh, and predicate of, our of each of our premises to see if there are further middle terms we could fill in between them. And we keep on doing this. Aristotle calls it thickening, you know, because it's kind of like here's something empty and we're kind of filling in the middles until it gets thick. We keep on thickening until all of our connections are indivisible. And in doing that, we've both defined all the relevant terms and grasp the causes. So, for example, that certain noise is an exhalation of air. The clouds extinguish fire because they're moist. And what the extinguishing of fire is, is probably moistness overcoming the heat of fire. Something like that. Again, this is an example that we know not true, and Aristotle probably didn't even think was true. So one could only push so hard on on the explanation, it'll break down at a certain point. But one could get the sense of how it's supposed to work, how this thickening is supposed to work. For now, let's just, for simplic further simplicity's sake, pretend that this connection between noise and fire and fire and clouds is basic. So that once we've filled this in, we've gotten all the way back to a demonstration. So imagine, you know, it looks like this. The terms are thicker. Okay, now we have some idea of how Aristotle thinks inquiry progresses. Evan was asking about this yesterday. Do you just try to find out things by deducing them? No, says Aristotle, you try to establish your that's first. 
Either you just notice that they're true, or you go out and observe. You know, do the clouds ever get noisy? Uh, what animals have what features? Or in some cases, you might have to deduce it to find it out, although often you won't be deducing from causes. But then once you've got your that's, you try to fill in the middle terms. And once you've thickened it until all the middle terms are there, all the causes are in place, then you'll have demonstrations. We still don't know how you do that thickening. And we're going to come to that. Uh, Keith, you had a question? So just in terms, you thicken until you can't insert anything more in between. What, what is that point? Is that when you've reached not axiom, axiom? It's when you've reached the fundamentals. You thicken until there's no thickening left to do. Two questions we could ask. What makes it the case that there's no thickening left to do? And how do you know when it's the case that there's no thickening left to do? What makes it the case that there's no thickening left to do is that you've gotten down to the fundamental causes in that area, to the right definitions of all the terms. Um, fire just, or, uh, uh, exhalations of air just are noisy, because what noise is is an exhalation of air, and so forth. And you've gotten down to the defi proper definition. Now, it's worth noting that according to objectivism, we can often keep going deeper in our definitions. Aristotle seems to have a nearer to binary view of it. You either have a superficial definition or you've got the cause. But, um, or maybe there are a couple of more steps, but not as many as we often think there are. But in any event, what makes it the case that there's no thickening left to do is that the connections are immediate. And what it means for them to be immediate is you've gotten down to just basic facts of the universe. Exhalations make noise, um, etc. Now, how do you know when you've done this? How do you know that there's no thickening left to do? I'm going to say a little more about that later, but let me say just this much for now. Aristotle thinks we're often wrong about whether we've done it. It's hard to know whether you've gotten to the bottom of things. And often we think we have when we haven't. Uh, what reasons are there to think that you've gotten there? Well, he never quite gives us a fully spelled out list. But I think from other things he says, you can get a sense of what kinds of things would count as reasons. And so we'll be in a better position to see that a little bit later. But I think it's important to know because uh, that he says, and this is in um, Posterior Analytics Book 1, Chapter 5, which is on the handout, that Often we're mistaken about this, and it's hard to know. And uh, it's important to note that because some people think you just get a mystical revelation and you just know when you're at the bottom. And that's not true, at least if there is any kind of aha sense, it's not infallible. And he gives lots of examples, or several examples, particularly from math, of when people thought they'd gotten to the bottom of something and they hadn't. But more on that in a moment. Okay. So now... I just want to talk a little bit more about definitions and Aristotle's view of definition in this connection. Because I've been saying that the why it is question and the what it is question are the same. Because both of them are seeking the cause, the middle term, between some subject and predicate. But notice that there's a sort of cheat there. Because I already, in going from is there any thunder to a subject-predicate kind of thing, had to use something that you might think of as a definition of thunder, noise in the clouds. 
I said, is there any thunder? Are the clouds noisy? You might think noise in the clouds is the definition of thunder. I needed to already have the definition of thunder to make that transition to the other question. So how could I first be asking what it is once I've already established that the clouds are noisy? Don't I know what thunder is? A certain noise in the clouds? Well, Aristotle distinguishes several types of definition. The first thing you might mean by the word definition, he says, <clears throat> this is a certain meaning of the word definition, and this one's a little bit removed from the next ones I'm going to give you, is an account of what a name or some other name-like phrase or account signifies. So what does triangle mean? What does the word triangle mean? Well, a three-sided figure. What does the word unicorn mean? Well, a horse with a horn. It's an answer to the question, what does this word mean? And in this sense of definitions, even invalid concepts could have definitions. Even words naming things that don't exist can have definitions. If, uh, if somebody says, I was visited by an angel, and a little kid you know, raised by one of you so that they're not hearing about angels constantly says, you know, what did he mean? You say, well, an angel is supposed to be a kind of flying thing that God sends down to talk to people, right? And you can give that answer, what does the word angel mean, while being totally agnostic as to whether there are angels, or even while being certain that there aren't, right? It's just an account of what the word means. Okay. All these other type of definitions that we're going to talk about uh, are not accounts on Aristotle's view of what words mean, but are talking about reality. So I'm graying this one out because it's a kind of special case, just what does the word mean. It's not a normal part of cognition that you start with words and have to have accounts of what they mean. Normally you only give accounts, you only need, come up with words when you know that something exists and what you're defining is the phenomenon that exists, thinks Aristotle. But you need an account of what a name signifies if someone else has introduced a name and you don't know whether the thing exists or not yet, so you have to know what he's talking about. So the first more genuine type of definition, or one of them anyway, the first I'm going to treat, is what he is, Aristotle describes it as a sort of demonstration of what something is, but differently arranged. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, an example he gives is thunder is noise in the clouds due to the extinguishing of fire. How is that, we could ignore the second example for now, how is this noise in the clouds due to the extinguishing of fire a sort of demonstration but differently arranged? Well, here's a demonstration. Anything that extinguishes fire is noisy and the clouds extinguish fire, therefore the clouds are noisy. And this definition of thunder is just a kind of rearranging of the same content that's in that demonstration. The demonstration says any fire extinguisher is noisy and the clouds are fire extinguishers, so the clouds are noisy. The definition says noise in the clouds due to the extinguishing of fire. It's no longer phrased as an assertion or a chain of assertions, right? The clouds are noisy, or the extinguishing is noisy, the clouds extinguish, the clouds are noisy. But rather, it puts all the terms that are together in the premises and conclusion of this argument with the same kind of logic 
that's laid out more explicitly in the argument. So it's a kind of condensation of this argument into something that's no longer an assertion, but just a phrase. Noise in the clouds due to extinguishing of fire. And that's one definition of thunder. It's a definition that's a sort of demonstration of what thunder is, but differently arranged. Now, when we say that this is a sort of demonstration of what thunder is, well, what's the conclusion of this demonstration? That there's a noise in the clouds, right? And so, if what's, what is thunder? Well, at a superficial level, thunder is a noise in the clouds. And this is a demonstration that noise in the clouds exists, that the clouds are noisy. So a second or another type of definition is going to correspond to the conclusion of this demonstration. And that definition is going to be noise in the clouds. <clears throat> so you can define thunder superficially as a certain noise in the clouds. Or you can give a definition which amounts to a demonstration, differently arranged, of the content of that definition, noise in the clouds. Namely, noise in the clouds due to the extinguishing of fire. You just take this definition and you add in the middle term. Due to, due to the middle term, extinguishing of fire. And then finally, we could have a definition that's an indemonstrable positing of what something is. A kind of most basic primitive type of definition, which is just going to give you the middle term. Thunder is extinguishing a fire. Now, why is this division of definitions useful? Well, Aristotle is interested in the question of, can you prove what something's definition is? Suppose you're in an argument over what the definition of something is. How can you settle that argument? This was an issue that came up for Socrates. Uh, how can you, you know whether a definition is right? How can two people argue about what the right definition is? I could see some ways to refute a candidate definition, but how can you prove that a definition is right? Plato tried to give some procedures for demonstrating definitions in later dialogues by which you take a very, very wide term like entity and you start narrowing down. Entities are living or dead. Pick one. Living. Okay. Living entities are mobile or immobile. Pick one. Mobile. Mobile entities have feet or no feet. Pick one. Feet. feet. And then you go down and you get you know, to bipedal featherless animal or something like that. But Aristotle says if you go through that whole process, you come up with some kind of account but it might as well be the definition of mountain copper. That is, you haven't shown it's the definition that you were looking for, of the very phenomenon you want to define. How do you prove that a certain thing is the definition of a certain thing? That this is the right definition of, say, man, or the right definition of thunder? Well, in order to even be inquiring into what the definition of thunder is, you have to know that there is thunder. Because things that don't exist don't have fundamental causes, which are going to be their definitions. They have accounts of what the word means. But there's no reason why some horses have horns. Because no horses do, and, or single horns in the middle of their head. And so there's no right, real definition of unicorn. But once you know that the phenomenon exists, you can start looking for the fundamental, which is going to define it. But in order to know what the that the phenomenon exists, you have to have what Aristotle calls something of the essence. You've got to have some grasp on the phenomenon. 
And what is the kind of grasp that you have when you know that something exists and now you're looking to define it in the deeper way? Well, you have the kind of grasp that you have when you know that there's a certain noise in the clouds. The clouds are sometimes noisy. I call that noisiness of the clouds thunder. Now, what is thunder? Well, if you already have that type of definition, a certain noise in the clouds, how can you prove what the more full definition of thunder is? Or the deeper definition, that thunder is the extinguishing of fire. Can you demonstrate the definition? Well, you can't demonstrate a definition because a demo definition is a principle. And principles are, by definition, the starting points of demonstration, the undemonstrable things from which a demonstration departs, the very first things, the very fundamentals. But what you can do is demonstrate this more superficial definition. Demonstrate either that thunder is going to be noisy, or the way Aristotle puts it, is demonstrate the connection between noise and clouds, which is brought out by the more superficial definition of thunder. And when you demonstrate that the clouds are noisy, showing that that follows from something deeper, namely extinguishing of fire, you demonstrate your superficial definition. But by using the deeper definition, by using the middle term, to demonstrate the content of the superficial definition, you show that the middle term is the thing that defines the thing that you grasp more superficially. So what you prove, or what you demonstrate, is that the clouds get noisy. But by using extinguishing of fire to show why the clouds get noisy, you prove that extinguishing of fire is the right definition for thunder, the right definition of the cloud's noisiness. What is that noisiness of the clouds? It's extinguishing of fire. And so thunder is extinguishing of fire, or put more long-windedly, thunder is no noise in the clouds due to extinguishing of fire. Put in more familiar terms, you show that a certain definition is the right definition of something by uh, showing that the characteristic by which you're defining it is fundamental to the other characteristics that distinguish it from other things. What is thunder such that I can tell it apart from other things? It's noisiness in the clouds. You know that boomy noisiness the clouds sometimes have. Well, now I can show you what's fundamental to that boomy noisiness, namely fire extinction by sh demonstrating, and thereby revealing as the cause, uh, by demonstrating that the clouds will be noisy from the middle term fire extinction. Therefore, showing that fire extinction explains why the clouds are noisy, therefore is fundamental to the clouds' noisiness, and therefore is the right definition of thunder. So this is how we prove definitions, and how we go from a more superficial that it is closer to perceptual level, not yet episteme type grasp of the world, to getting an episteme type grasp of the world, to having demonstrations, to seeing the world in terms of fundamentals and causes. Well, how do we actually do this, though? How do we find our middle terms? How do we go from there's that noisy stuff in the clouds sometimes. Sometimes the clouds are noisy to discovering what the cause is. Well, let's ask the question commonsensically. 
again using this toy example, how would somebody probably get the idea that thunder, that noise in the clouds we're all familiar with, is the extinguishing of fire? Go ahead, David. Yeah, and a sound they, it sounds similar to a sound they heard when? When extinguishing fires. So what they would do is they would look to their major term. The major term is certain noise, and the minor term is clouds. And they would say, well, what else do I know about that major term? What things is that major term, boomy noise, true of? Here's something, fire extinction. Whenever I put out a fire, there's a boomy noise, a crackly kind of noise. Okay, now, can I connect that thing, which I now know brings the major term, boomy noise, with it, to clouds? Yeah, you know, when it's thundering, there is that fiery stuff in the sky, lightning we call it, that kind of seems to get being put out in the clouds. So, huh, boomy noise goes along with fire extinction, and there is fire in the sky when there's thunder, and I know the clouds are wet, you know, because there's fog and stuff, right? And they rain, so they must be wet. So wet things put out fire. The clouds would have to stifle a fire. And when you stifle a fire with water, it makes a boomy noise. And so you see the connection how? Well, by knowing more things about your major and your minor term, you have a lot of knowledge about boomy noises and what things sound boomy. And you have a lot of knowledge about clouds. For example, they're moist, they're in the sky, etc. And you start looking among the things you know about clouds and among the things you know about boomy noises until you find something that connects them up. Now, you might be worrying, well, this is leading to false conclusions, so the method must be bad. But, you know, notice that um, the way one could challenge this extinguishing of fire in the clouds definition is by pointing out, well, lightning's not quite fire, is it? And sometimes it goes to the ground rather than to other clouds and it still makes noise. And, you know, you can challenge these premises um, while still keeping this broad methodology of look to what I know about my major term, look to what I know about my minor, and see where I find something that would convey the major to the minor, that would connect them. Well, in order to do that, you need to have your knowledge organized a certain way. And so what Aristotle talks about a fair amount in the later chapters of the posterior analytics, there's one or two chapters on this, and at greater length in the prior analytics, is how to organize your knowledge to facilitate deduction and demonstration. And this is, I think, an important point. And so I want to take some time on it. The main thing that you need to do <coughs> is to start identifying things at the right level of generality, what Aristotle calls the primitive universal. Once you've done this, once you've started identifying all the things in the domain you're trying to learn about at the right level of generality, having done that, you will have both the that's that you need to find the whys for, and also the premises which are going to supply you with your middle terms. You're wise. And all of these things are what Aristotle calls primitive universals. Why? Well, let me make it clear what we mean by primitive universal. This is one of Aristotle's own examples. You notice that all olive vines shed their leaves. 
So leaf shedding belongs universally to olive vines. But it also belongs to maple trees, oak trees, etc. All these things shed their leaves. So although it belongs to all olive vines, that's not the first or highest universal olive vines to which leaf shedding belongs. What is the highest universal? What kinds of trees, at the, what kinds of plants at the most universal level are leaf shedders? When you put them all together and you notice which plants shed their leaves, the answer is all broadleafed plants shed their leaves. Not just olive vines, not just grape vines, not just maple trees, but all broadleafed plants. And are there any wider kinds of plants rather than broadleafed which all shed their leaves? No, it's all and only broadleafed plants that shed their leaves. Leaf shedding is something that belongs primitively. The right thing to describe leaf shedding as a feature of, the thing of which leaf shedding is a distinguishing characteristic, as we might put it, is broadleafed trees. The things we call deciduous plants now, right, as opposed to conifers, you know, pines. Okay. So now you have a primitive universal. Broadleafed plants shed their leaves. Now, either this is going to be a, the broadest universal you can, either this is going to be a principle from which you can explain why olive vines and so forth shed their leaves. Maybe. People debate whether that counts as a demonstration when you go from all broadleaf trees shed their, plants shed their leaves, olive vines are broadleaf, so olive vines shed their leaves. Is that a demonstration or just some way of applying universal knowledge to a particular? But the real impressive thing is if you can find some reason why all broadleaf things shed their leaves. Some connection between broadleafness in a plant and shedding. And how would you do that? Well, it's although only among plants, only the broadleafed ones shed their leaves, shedding is a more general phenomenon, right? We witness it in hair falling out, and birds molt their plumage, and you know, stuff falls off of things sometimes. So we would go to our more general knowledge of why things fall off of other things, especially within living things, and then think about what would be true of all and on, among plants, all and only the broadleafed ones, such that the shedding phenomenon would apply only to the broadleafed plants among plants. And the example, Arist the, the answer Aristotle gives, which it's kind of unclear how he means it to work, is that the sap hardens at the leaf stem. So I think the idea is that shedding, falling out of things happen when things get brittle and dry out. And there's some kind of bottlenecking that happens of the sap at a leaf stem because the leaf goes out, you know, and therefore there's drying out there. But the particular cause that he comes up with it, ah, isn't uh, what's really relevant, um, but rather the method of going to the highest level of uh, universality. Consider again the case of uh, the even numbers. I can, when we, we came up with the question, do, um, you might notice, for example, that anything multiplied by 2 yields something even. And anything multiplied by 4 yields something even. And anything multiplied by 6 yields something even. And so on and so on and so on. But you're not going to be able to find the right cause if you try to explain any one of those facts individually. Rather, you need to go to the broadest phenomenon. What do all these have in common? Well, they're all multiplications by an even number. And it's all and only multiplication problems that involve an even factor 
that yield an even product. So why is that? And then you try to explain it at that level. And then you can turn to general things you know about evenness and multiplication to give you the answer. And we talked about what the cause of that is before. So it's important to go to these widest level generalizations. And if you're going to organize your knowledge to have the right things to try to demonstrate, as Aristotle calls it, setting up the problems. The problem is something you're going to demonstrate. To set it up at the right level of universality. And also to have a lot of premises at the right level of universality uh, on hand to use to do the demonstrating. And so let me give another example. I've noticed to my kind of annoyance a number of questions that get asked and tried to be explained about objectivists through the objectivist movement that I think are mistaken because they fly against this very principle. So for example, at a conference some years ago, someone stood up at a microphone, a Q&A for Dr. Peacock, and asked him, why are there so many gay people in objectivism? And I thought, well, it's not just objectivism. I mean, if you went to a communist club, there'd be a lot of gay people. And there would be, if you went to it, what do all these things have in common? Then we'd know what we should explain prevalence of gay people in. And it's something like countercultural movements. And if you have the idea of a countercultural group, and you know that gay people tend to be different, and maybe they're put, they're put down, or whatever it is, you can start to think about why there would be a lot of gay people there. Or, again, one that is, I think, easier and uh, uh, more of more interest to some of us. Some people have noticed that there's been a number of kind of acrimonious splits in the objectivist movement. People get upset at each other and they stop working together. Why does this happen? And people start looking for reasons. But it's not just the objectivist movement, right? It's true of the abolitionist movement. It's true of communists. It was true of the founding fathers who got really mad at each other and Jefferson and Adams didn't talk for a long time. It's true of environmentalists. There are these people breaking off from Greenpeace and getting upset at them. It's true of the animal. It's true of every what? Of every intellectual movement that's, at odd, that's you know, very significantly different and that wants to put its ideas into practice. Because it might not be true of theoretical mathematicians. You'd expect it to less be true. Maybe there'd be some. So I think radical ideological movements are prone to acrimonious splits. Now once you form it at that level of, of generality, it's not that hard to see why. Because you look for what else do you know about radical ideological movements. And what else do you know about divisions between people and about what makes people angry. And here are some facts. Radical ideological movements fight to implement moral principles. Now this is something that you might first have noticed about any one of these movements. The communists are trying to implement what they think is a moral principle. The environmentalists are. But you bring that up to the right level of generality. Any radical ideological movement is doing that. And when you're trying to apply an abstract principle to real life, there's going to be a lot of occasion for disagreement. Um, there's going to be a lot of occasion for disagreement. Well, be, both be for honest disagreement and dishonest. Well, when people disagree about what to do, but they're trying to work together, what happens? Well, they have to go their separate ways. So they're going to split. But what they're going their separate ways about is what the right thing to do is. So now you have two groups of people who split up, going and doing different things, each thinking what they're doing is right and the other doing is wrong. So disagreements about what to do split a group into factions. Therefore, ideological movements easily split into factions. 
And now each of the factions into which the ideological movements split think the actions or inactions of the other are immoral. And how do people who regard one another as immoral uh, feel about one another? Well, they feel angry about them. Particularly if they think the immorality of the other is frustrating the things that are important to them personally. And so the factions are going to be acrimonious. And therefore there will be acrimony between the factions into which a radical ideological movement splits. That is, radical ideological movements, whatever ideology it was, there will always be a danger of splitting there and of there being kind of acrimony. Which is why that has happened a few times with objectivists and why it happened with the founding fathers. Notice it happens in both what, we would, what I think are good ideological movements like the abolitionist movement and the American founding and with bad ideological movements like communism. Okay. Now, I just give this as an example of how it's important to go to the widest level if you're going to acquire understanding. I haven't been talking much about induction, but this is all inductive, right? You say, well, broadleaf, well, this plant sheds its leaves and all of them do. Aristotle's assuming you can know that. He doesn't have much to say about how you do, but he doesn't think it's problematic. You just see all the ones plant and you can go from some to all. He doesn't have much to say about how, but presumably because well, I won't answer that. He doesn't say. I can just give my own reason for how we can do it. Uh, but you can keep, once you've got that all vine tree, all vines shed their leaves and all of this kind of tree and that kind of tree, you can start putting these groups together and seeing, well, what's the widest class? What's the widest type of thing that this predicate applies to? And once you've done that, you've got a, a, a premise, that's a, a proposition that's going to play some role in your understanding of this field. And once you have a lot of these propositions, you can start to see which are broader and which are narrower by seeing which major terms go out also occur in different fields, like shedding occurs in different fields than trees. And then you'll see what is it about shedding in general that within the domain of trees would make it only apply to the broadleafed ones. And then you'll be able to find the cause of shedding. What is it about acrimony in general independent of movements, which is going to make it apply to the splits in ideological movements. Well, the splits in ideological movements are going to be over moral issues, and people who differ over moral things will tend to be angry at one another, or offended by one another, think ill of one another. Okay. Notice we've been talking about all of this as though we already have all the terms all the concepts that we're going to use in forming these generalizations. But that's not necessarily so. As Aristotle puts it, though we now speak in terms of the common names that have been handed down, it's necessary to inquire not only in these cases, also if any other common attribute should be uh, observed, then after extracting it, after kind of selecting it for special attention, we ought to inquire into what it follows and what follows it. That is, um, shedding follows broadleaf and broadleaf follows, um, well, he doesn't tell us what it follows. And I don't know enough about biology. But um, uh, laughing follows rational and rational uh, goes with things that are bipedal and a bunch of other features. In general, what we need to do is, as we are looking for what the most universal level to hold in our thinking about things, each predicate is falling at, 
we need to be aware of the fact that we might not yet have a name for either the predicate or the subject involved. And this is what Aristotle thinks often causes us not to think we've reached the most primitive level in which we can do a demonstration when we really haven't. Uh, he gives a mathematical example that some of you who know a fair amount about math might find interesting in Posterior Analytics 1.5. It's quoted on the handout, but it's, the math is a little too complicated for me to try to do it here. Um, but we can see the gist of it if we look in the topics. Sometimes when we're doing inductions, it's not easy to ask for the universal. Why ask for? Because this is the topics and it's that Q&A format. So I go to you, you know, well, are the communists uh, prone to breaking up into splits? Yes. Are the, you know, um, anarchists? Yes. So are all these people? And you say, well, I don't know. I'm not going to answer. What do you mean by all these people? It's hard to ask for the universal because a common name has not yet been laid down. For, for every likeness. There's something alike about this whole range of people, good and bad even, you know, that I'm listing, objectivists, environmentalists, communists, etc. There's something common that I'm trying to get at with this induction, namely that they're ideological movements, but it doesn't yet have a name. And so whenever I need to secure the universal to get you to give me, you know, the conclusion of this induction I'm leading you through, I say, is it the case in all such things? And you say... No, or I don't know, what do you mean by such, right? And you can kind of argue and bicker with me about it. Uh, and what I need to do to really get the induction uh, and to get it clear what you've agreed to, because if you say, yes, it's true of all such things, and then I try to apply it to a new case, you might say, well, that's not really such. It's not the same. What I need to do is isolate what it is that I'm making this universal claim of. It's among the most difficult things to distinguish, which things are which way, which things you mean when you just say they're such, they're like the others. And so what you have to try to do in these cases is make up a name covering all such things. Come up with some word or phrase which we can both understand as capturing the wide universal to which this predicate applies, ideological movements or radical ideological movement. We don't have a word, radical ideological movement, but I made up that phrase. And that's now going to become a term in my system of science that I'm building of how to understand movements. Maybe it's the science of sociology or political theory or something. So we often need to introduce new terms. We need to introduce new terms to form new concepts. Aristotle's phrase is making up names. When we are in the process of organizing our knowledge at the right level of universality, so that we're going to be able to discover the middle terms. Now, what justifies us in introducing a new concept, in forming a new concept? Well, two things that we can already see from the examples we've looked at. One, there's some kind of likeness or similarity there. And two, something follows, something always co-occurs with this likeness or similarity, such that we'd have something to say about all the things that are similar in this way. Now, yesterday I talked about, in the case of animals, where Aristotle has the most to say about this, but also in some other cases, him saying that things are similar and belong into a kind when they differ from the more in the more and the less, 
when they have a quantitative more and less difference. And in that same context, he says that you should introduce a name for a kind when things differ in the more and the less and have forms, subtypes, that aren't too different, like the birds aren't too different from one another. So they differ from one another in the more and the less, how long the beak is, how long the feather is, how curved the beak is, how high they fly, how, you know, all these different aspects along which you can compare birds. But they're relatively similar to one another and have a common nature. And nature in this context, I think, means, uh, because of how he uses it elsewhere in related contexts, that there are things that it follows and that follow it. So if you have a bunch of things that are comparable to one another, differ in the more and the less, and they're such that they stand in relationships to other so already named or not yet named groups of comparable things which are relatively close to one another, such that when you introduce words, you'll be able to attribute some of these newly named things to others and say, all S's are P. All radical ideological movements are uh, in danger of splitting over hot-button issues, etc. All um, horned animals that lack a second row of teeth have uh, four stomachs. It's one of Aristotle's. Uh, you're then going to be in a position to uh, introduce concepts like horn haver to play a role in your science. Horn havers have an extra stomach if they don't have, and not an extra row of teeth because they need the horns to defend themselves. They've got to take the hard stuff they would have used for their teeth to make the horns. And now they don't have enough teeth, so their food doesn't get ground up enough, and therefore they have extra stomachs. That's at least like bulls, your cows, you know, the so things we call ruminants. It be a causal. Yeah, you need, well, when you're going to, what you want to do is you want to formulate your data about a field in terms not just of all bulls have this trait, but all and only whatever the relevant kind is has this trait. Um, when you're doing that, you might find that you don't have a word for the widest kind that's relevant. Um, uh, if you don't, but you see, you know, well, bulls have this trait, and gazelles have this trait, and deer have this trait, and whatever. I don't know. I've lost. I don't know what these things have in common. But, uh, and there's something otherwise alike that doesn't have a name about them. You introduce a name, and now you put this trait in the folder for that wider kind of thing. So far, there's not necessarily causality involved yet. But what there is involved uh, yet, there might be. But what there is is correlating at the right levels of generality. Once you've got correlations all at the right level of generality, you can then start to look at which of these cause others. So the kind of following that's involved here is not clear whether it's always causal, but it at least is sometimes causal. It's such that you could say, all S is P. Uh, sometimes, because it's, sometimes it's going to be a primitive connection. Sometimes it's going to be a connection through a middle term, which is causal. Um, only have a few minutes, so let me just make the one or two last points I want to make. But I just want to say now, if you look at some of Aristotle's biological works, particularly the history of animals, what you find him doing there and this has been shown by Alan Godalf and Jim Lennox and David Baum, among others, is trying to find these widest correlations. 
what, what's come to be called widest class generalizations. What? The name of the work is History of Animals, or Historia Animalium. Okay. Now notice, I've been talking now about how we reach definitions of concepts that we already have and have defined in a kind of superficial way, where we try to find the causes. But in order to go looking for the causes, we need to start uh, storing, you know, forming our database uh, of knowledge about the field uh, in such a way that we store everything at the most general level we can. And we introduce new concepts when we need them to do this. But this is a standard for introducing new concepts is a way to kind of fill in a couple of concepts you're missing when you already have a lot of concepts. For example, you have the concept split and then you're trying to see what's the widest kind to which it applies. Well, you don't have a name so you introduce one. What would you need to form a concept in the first place? Well, you would need to Aristotle doesn't say this, but if we apply this same kind of reasoning back to forming one's first concepts, you would need to grasp that things are similar, and they're similar in such a way that there's some things that follow that are true of all these similar things. And I think the idea is that that's what you can do if you have empiria, if you have experience with a certain kind of thing. You've associated memories of the things. They've come to be stored associationally in you because of their similarity. And now you get hunches every time you see one of them about what kind of things are going to come next, what kind of traits it's going to have. Well, what you now need to do is name that similarity. When you name that similarity, man, that's what they've all got in common. That's what they all are, such that they have these different features that I'm noticing of them. Maybe I don't have words for the features yet. And what is a man? Well, you know, it's uh, like this. It moves and makes noises, you can say, to take Ayn Rand's version of the definition a child might have. Some things, some entities move and make noises. Now you've introduced a term, and you can start looking for a middle between the move and make noises. Like they're rational. And that's why they move as they do and make the noises they do with communication. And so I think when you understand that what we might call the highest, most developed state of the perceptual level, when you don't yet have universals and concepts, involves some kind of primitive associating and projecting, you, it's easier to see. And I think this is. Uh, why Aristotle stresses that empiria is involved on the way to getting universals and therefore to getting principles and definitions. That uh, when we see that empiria is involved, we can see uh, how, it is, what, how it is that we're able to go from perception uh, to universal principles. At least get a lead as to how it could work. Perception is richer, or what you have before you have concepts is richer than you might think. It involves grouping things and being able to project, but in a kind of unself-conscious way. And then you bring order to that, and that's what we call concept formation. Now, what happens when you're bringing order to that? Well, what you're doing 
is that you're grasping that things are alike and that they fit into what we might call certain causal roles or inferential roles maybe, that certain things follow from their likenesses. These things are alike in such a way that certain things are true of all of them. And that's why we're going to come up with a name, make up a name for all of them, man. And we're going to start storing the things that are true of all of them under the heading man, rather than remembering it about each of one and then kind of projecting to new cases on the basis of them seeming like the old. But when we start doing that, we start doing it in a very gross and coarse way. Gross in the sense of gross versus fine, not yucky. Um, in a kind of very coarse way. Aristotle says animal concepts tend to be formed first, or animal kinds, on the basis of similarities of the whole body. And what we later start doing is refining our terms so as to group things in, in different ways which pick out more narrowly, which let us more narrowly focus on the different aspects of them that are relevant to them being uh, uh, having the traits that they do. This is a little obscure and I'm uh, running out of time. So let me give you Aristotle's example and elaborating on that will be the last thing I do. He tells us that children start by calling all men fathers and all women mothers which I thought was ridiculous, but it turns out it's actually true. Uh, my girlfriend Karen is small, white, and quiet. Her sister-in-law is large, black, and comparatively loud, and yet her niece calls her mama. And I was over Keith Lockage's uh, house a few weeks ago, and his little son Isaac was pointing out the window at all the strangers across the street calling them dada. Well, what is it? It's not that they're confusing the other kids with their parents, the other men with their fathers. Because, you know, children can tell their mother from other women pretty easily. It's rather, the point Aristotle's making, is that they confuse being a mother with being a woman. They haven't differentiated those concepts. They, women go together for them, and then they have the term mother. And any other term for women is going to be synonymous with that for them. But as they get more sophisticated, they notice that some things hold of... Uh, Andrew, in virtue of the similarity he has to all men, but there are some things that don't hold of all men that hold of him, and they don't hold of me, but they also hold of, I don't know who else has kids. Anyway, someone else who's a father. And they then start organizing their knowledge such that, well, there are fathers, and certain things hold of fathers, and certain things hold of men. And so... As they form more and more concepts, as they form more and more terms, such that they can organize their knowledge, such that everything's held at the most universal level, and then they can start to see what can explain what, they're not only grouping things together, as the battle route analogy that I described yesterday, where the soldiers come together to form the phalanx symbolizes, but they're also dividing up each individual to isolate the different aspects of that individual, which are made salient when he's grouped with different things. And so to understand you know, why certain men are woken up in the middle of the night during a certain period of their life, you have to understand not just that they're men, but that they're fathers and therefore have little kids. 
uh, and to understand um, you know, why their savings accounts are structured a certain way or you know, different things that might be true of all fathers. Um, anyway, I think we might have time for uh, one question uh, since I've, I've run on a bit. So let's close with one question and then I'll be happy to answer questions off the clock. Go ahead. So, uh, as for your example about children confusing uh, their concepts of say, woman and mother, is it, is it really that it's a confusion or is it just that the word mama refers in their mind to the concept woman, what we call woman? The word concept refers to the, the, the word mother would refer to the concept woman. But if you tried to give them two words, right, woman and mother, they would use them interchangeably. Because they, they're not at a level to grasp that difference yet. They're, they can form a concept for a gross similarity between women, but they can't yet form more fine-grained concepts. Um, I, I guess my question is just whether it's proper to characterize it as a confusion as against just a relatively unsophisticated stage of concept. Well, it would be a confusion only in this sense. Because they're grouping all women together, they're going to be prone to generalize to all women or to try to be generalizing to all women things that they learn about some women. And those generalizations are going to semi-work because they're going to work for a lot of women, those who are the mothers. right? Some of them will be true of all women, but some things will just be true about mothers. And they'll be not yet distinguishing what they're generalizing about women from what they're generalizing about mothers. And they're going to have to make that distinction for them to be able to get anywhere with mother generalizing. Uh, there's more to say about this, but we're out of time, so uh, we'll talk about it after class. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.